Dear saints, owned by God, children of God, grace and peace is ours in abundance. Amen. Harvey, not Harvey Roski, but Harvey the Hurricane, is on our minds. The news makes sure of that. It happened in our state. It's still happening today because of the large aftermath, and we're all thinking about disaster and 58 inches of rain in places. Unprecedented weathermen said they don't even have on record. They're calling it, what, a six, 800-year flood? Couldn't even say one or 500-year flood. And now if you, if you go to look on your phone somewhere out on the Internet, you can see the sheetrock and furniture and everything else from houses just making a, a long ridge of mountainous heaps along streets in our fair city, Houston, and the surrounding area. It's on our minds. I think it's important that uh, we sometimes, when events like this happen, put aside our regular scheduled preaching verses and maybe talk about something God says to God's people, like us who live right next to the disaster. We got a couple inches of rain, maybe three or four in some places, but that's not a disaster. It happened down there along our coast. We're living right next to it, and we're God's people right next to it. And what's really fascinating to me as I prayerfully thought about preaching to you today was there's a place in Scripture where God spoke to people living right next to a disaster. And some of you have heard the passages before, but if you just look up here, that's a picture of a, a, play, a corner in Rockport where the, the eye of the storm went and just devastated that little town. On the right is a statue in commemoration of a famine with a lady and a little baby. Famines are longer drawn out. They hurt people for a lot longer time, and the need is sometimes even greater. In the Bible, the, the tragedy was a famine. Uh, in our land, it's this hurricane and the rain that it brought, but in the Bible, it was a famine. Did you know that the entire New Testament history was lived out during a, an era of famine? There were a series of droughts that all kind of stacked up. In Acts chapter 11, so it's right after Jesus ascended into heaven, a, a Jewish Christian who was a prophet went up to the new Gentile church in Antioch, just straight north, a few hundred miles, and he met Paul and Barnabas in the church there. And this is what, Ag his name was Agabus. He said, God has told me there's going to be a famine like never before in the world, and it's going to last a long time. And it came true shortly after that. The emperor, Claudius, was in power in the late 40s A.D., and historians of his day recorded it was the most widespread famine that they had seen in the history of the Roman Empire. Lots of people suffered and lots of people starved. They didn't have FEMA. They didn't have a benevolent government. They didn't have a lot of help, the people. And in that environment is where God sent the Apostle Paul to start churches. The Apostle Paul was like our Pastor Radloff, who the Energizer Bunny that keeps on going. Uh, Pastor Radloff's in China right now. He's got the late stages of liver cancer, and he's making one maybe last missionary trip, baptizing people and talking about Jesus. That was the Apostle Paul. The people that Paul served were of all walks of life. He said to the Corinthians, not many of you were noble when I came and preached the gospel to you, but some of you were. Many of them were just garden variety common folks. Corinth is in Greece, up in the north part of the Mediterranean. Jesus and his apostles lived down southeast of the Mediterranean in the Holy Land. The famine was hardest hit in North Africa and over there in the Holy Land that Agabus had prophesied about that Paul ministered during. 
the people in Corinth were living like us right next to the people of the famine, as well as other people from Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi, all places, if you've read the Bible, that we're familiar with that Paul wrote letters to, right? Well, Paul decided this is the kind of man of God he was. He wasn't just teaching the gospel. He was saving physical lives because he believed that God wanted us to do all of that, and he does. So Paul decided to go back through those churches and send the word ahead of himself to collect money. They did have a currency in the Roman Empire to collect money because it's portable. Remember, logistics are hard today. Man, were they 10 times difficult back then. And they didn't have the news and all those, uh, the internet and all these things, how we get things rapid fire up to the minute where the cars are wrecked on the freeway in front of us and blah, blah, blah. They didn't have any of that. He got the word out and very slowly throughout the New Testament history, this offering unfolds and he's going to come pass through all these towns and collect the money to take it to Judea where the famine is the hardest. And he's going to start with the Christian church, A, because they all are Christians together. These people don't know each other. They're from different races, really. The Jews down there and the Gentiles up in the Mediterranean, North Mediterranean. But the Christians in Judea were disconnected from even their families and distant relatives because of their faith. They'd been kind of pushed out and thought to be serving Satan and not God. So the people in the famine wouldn't necessarily help them either. So the Christians stepped up and Paul was leading that because he was a good leader. And so Paul had this offering, and the Corinthians were participating, and they kind of lost focus sometimes. There was a church north of them. We wouldn't say very far, but we drive in cars, just maybe 100 miles in Philippi, Macedonia, that were mostly poor folks, and they begged Paul for the privilege of giving to the offering for the relief effort down in Judea. And the Corinthians, well, they were kind of more interested in getting some new flooring in their house and maybe a new horse and buggy and maybe tickets to the arena to go watch some of the games. And they were were richer in worldly goods and giving less than the poor folks up in Philippi. Paul used the Philippians to encourage the Corinthians. In chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, he says, These folks gave themselves first to the Lord and then begged us. And I told them, No, if you give to us, you're going to have a need. And they said, Don't rob us of the privilege of giving. Let us give. And Paul said, I'm just sharing that story with you, Corinthians, to say they're a great example. And then come these passages we're going to look at today. And I'm just saying, dear Christian friends, I'm going to share them with you because they're great for our hearts, because we're living right next to a disaster, right? So let's read the first paragraph. We're going to get three big points out of this and go home with uh, new, some new thoughts. Ready? Read it with me. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It is is written, they freely scattered their gifts to the poor. 
Their righteousness endures forever. Amen. What he's saying is, you have no need to be stingy. You have every reason to be generous, so be generous. It's not what you get to keep for yourself that you need to think about. It's what you want God to bless. If a sower sows 10 seeds, he only gets 10 plants with 10 heads of grain on it. But if he sows 100 seeds, he gets tenfold that. So what do you want God to bless when you're thinking about giving? What, do you want, what kind of good do you want your life to be when you think about giving? If you start with what loss you might endure, you won't be a generous giver. You might be a giver in worldly terms, but in spiritual terms, you're still not a giver. This is challenging, but it's important for our heart. Right in the middle of the verse is the main thought. God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give under compulsion because it's not giving. Don't give because the reverend said you ought to, should have, better. That's not giving. He said give freely and not reluctantly from the heart, not worrying about it. Be like those guys up in Philippi and just give freely. And God loves that when he sees a person get this this is in the second half of the paragraph when he sees a person generous like he is like he is you know god did not sit around heaven counting what it would cost him when he decided to send his son for you had he given it that much thought he would not have done it. Right before this chapter, in chapter 8, after talking about the Macedonians, Paul said, remember Jesus was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus just didn't give part of his time or part of his money or part of his life. He gave it all. The only guy that's ever done it. (laughs) And he did it for us. Gave up a perfect life and it was a perfect sacrifice and cut it short 33 years so you could have heaven. Wow. And on top of that, thousands of years later, God, who had invented you in his head before eternity, invented you and gave you to your parents and put you on this earth in this great state and this great nation and He's given you jobs and the breath and the f- you breathe and the food you eat and everything else in your life is from the same God who gave you Jesus. And you're to be changed by that. And we forget. So God writes things like this so we remember. That's what it starts with. Remember. Be generous like God is generous. There is an iconic story. I know I've told it to you before. I don't care because it's like my preacher had five stories and he told them over and over again. At least I've given you maybe 500 over and over again. But the five stories he gave us have stuck with me my whole life. This is not one of them. This is one I heard, but I like to tell it because it's about giving and this is the right place for it. There was an old cowboy that went to his church. He sat in the back pew. He loved the sermon. He wanted to give an offering that day. He pulled out his wallet because he hadn't planned ahead. And he looked inside, and there were two bills, a dollar bill and a Benjamin Franklin, a $100 bill. And he looked down in there, and he went, oh, my goodness. He goes, I don't want to give just a dollar, but I don't want to give a 100 either. Now, this is way before we could say, get out your cell phone and go to push pay. And he said, 
I'll make it up next week. You ever thought that? Come on, some of you have, right? He said, I'll give the dollar today. I'll give the hundred uh, or some more later. So he took out the one and put it in the offering plate. Church was over. He walked out after saying his normal Sunday greetings to people. Hint, hint. And then he went to his truck. He got in, and since he was an older feller, like your pastor here, he thought, sometimes I make mistakes. I'm just going to double check in my wallet. And inside of his wallet was a $1 bill. Oh, my goodness. You think this parable is unrealistic? One time, uh, the, the, my, I grew up at a church of 200 people. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, the, the fellas counting the money came out and got my parents. We were getting in the car in the parking lot, and they said, Mrs. Patterson, you gave us the wrong check. You gave us your house payment today. And we were counting the offering. <laughs> gave it back. Said to the mortgage company. So anyway, um, the fellow said to himself, I got to figure this out. I got to buy gas this week. That's a good week. To, this is a good week to tell that illustration, right? So he goes back in the church and he says, where are they counting the money? They said in the back room. So he went into the back room, knocked on the door and got, went in. He said, sirs, I'm really sorry, but I, I was going to make it up next week. But I need that $100 bill that I gave. I meant to give a, a, a dollar I have on my wallet. It's only two things I have. And I know it's really embarrassing for me, but I got to ask it. I have the 100 back. And they said, look, this is God's money. We're not giving you a hundred back. You gave it to God, but you can go talk to the preacher. So he went down the hallway into the preacher's study and he knocked on the door, said, Reverend, I got to talk to you. Tried to talk to the counters, but they said they couldn't fix it. He said, I need, I gave, I had two bills in my wallet and I gave, thought I gave the one and dollar bill and I ended up giving the hundred and I was going to make it up next week. And is there any way you can get that? Cause they won't give it back to me unless you tell them cause you're the preacher. Could you get the $100 bill back for me? And the pastor said, you know, that's God's money. He said, he'll take care of you. And if you're really hurting, call me this week and we'll, 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 we'll help you out. But we're going to have to leave it in the offering. So he's walking out of the study. He said, well, I guess I have the satisfaction in knowing that I gave God $100 this week. And the pastor said, no, sir, you gave God $1. That little story helps you know what Paul's saying in this chapter. It's not what's in the corner of the bill. It's what's in the corner of your heart. God owns everything. Don't think you're going to impress him with a number. <laughs> he wants to know that it's coming from that free heart that understands I'm a recipient. And in the relief work that we got to do this week down in Edna and Victoria, we started with the church members and move out from there like people like you and me just that some of them because i've been around a while i've known and they're givers they're sacrificial they're and you know how hard it is to receive it's hard but that's what god wants he wants everybody to learn that they are recipients and he wants people with this storm to learn by what god gives to them that they aren't necessarily the ones that are the big givers, that God's the big giver, and now they are going to give in the future from a different heart, right? So next, next point in the next paragraph is, trust God when you're scared that you might hurt if you give. Let's read this. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. 
you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, our generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. What's he saying? Trust that God will abundantly bless you so you can bless others again after you bless them this time. You cannot outgive God. Put that slide up there. This guy's got a, bag, a, a basket of grain and it's just pouring out like it just keeps coming, right? You can't outgive God. That's, you heard what Jesus said. If you give, it'll be pressed down and shaken together and overflowing. You get blessings because God is gracious, not because you're so good. We know that. I know that. But on top of that, more blessing will come so you can be blessings to others as you learn to be a generous recipient giver. And God can trust you with more if he sees you're not being stingy. You know what's kind of cute is the... Vicar was finishing up the uh, children's message up here, and the kids were learning just from generosity. They were starting to wrestle over the coins in the front. And I thought, what a symbol of the rest of us, right? You hear this word of God, you're freed up, the Lord's working on you, and then you kind of like, yeah, but I still got to, like the praying man is, keep pulling it all in. Trust God that he will bless you. He will. Be a generous person. He'll take care of you. And trust means there's going to be a gap between the giving and the receiving. It might be a day, a week, a month, a year, but there's, there might be, but it'll trust him. Because God is in the business of making his people like him so he can change the world with us. You have to trust him, though, and be a good giver. He'll take care of you. We have a connect group. You're, a lot of you are in connect groups. I hope you all join connect groups. One thing Chad White and the strategy team led us to do last year was, hey, pick out something as a group you can do outside the group for somebody else. So we decided we were, because of John's wife, Dawn, knew somebody doing homeless ministry down in Austin, that we would join them for one Saturday, bring a whole bunch of our stuff, goods and services, and we would help be with them, and we did it. It took us a while to gather everything. We got it done, though. But the, we had, Cindy was her name, come to our group and tell us all about what she does. She said, God put it on my heart. I do, I'm not a woman of means. And I started to, to, trying to decide I'm going to go down there as an individual, whether my church comes along or not, and start feeding the hungry on a Saturday morning, one Saturday a month, and give them clothes and whatever else. And she said, she told us three stories, but she said, you would not believe the many stories I have where once I set my heart to give like this, God sent people to me to supply what I need. She and her husband don't have the means to even own a trailer to drag the stuff. They rent one every month to take it down there to, to give that stuff away. But she said, God keeps giving to me so I can give to others. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? God gave him control of Egypt when he was going to be generous with it, and he saved millions of lives with the seven years of good grain. Remember the widow of Zarephath where Elisha the prophet went to stay with her? And what happened? Or was Elijah? And she had a little flour and a little oil. And every time they, in that famine, they ate a little bit each day out of it. What did God do? Put it back. Right? Remember the little boy with two loaves of, five loaves of bread and two fish? And they had 5,000 men plus women and children to feed. And they came and took that from that little boy and he gave it. And then they got 12 baskets full. I wonder if they said to the little boy, come over here, uh, take one of the baskets. <laughs> 12 baskets God made out of just a few. 
And God will do it for you and me too. He promises in his word. You don't have to have stories. You just trust his word. And then I want you to remember this. Watch God work in a way that you don't normally think. He works on hearts through your generosity. One more paragraph to read with me. Bear with me and read, okay? This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people and their bodies, but is also overflowing in their hearts in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. When people start giving to people, people are changing people. And God's behind it all. What he's saying is there's something that happens that doesn't meet the eye. You give a day's worth of labor in Edna or Victoria, like we had 35 people do this week, and then they're changed inside to praise and thank God. Uh, I was only there for a day and a half, but really maybe two days. There's people down there for four. And uh, I remember one couple, he's the president of our congregation down there. He's older. They, they, had, they had a lot of damage. He, with tears in his eyes, he said, at my age, and I'm unable, he said, there's no way, I didn't know what I was going to do. It was going to be months before insurance was going to be able to help us. And he said, it's hard to be the recipient, but he said, I'm so thankful to God that through the body of Christ we're being helped. He had thanksgiving. And here's the point. Worship is not what we do when we tell you, according to our little worship rules, stand up, sit down, say prayers in the right place. Let's all sing the hymn together. Let's read it while they're singing it. Let's give our offerings. Let's pat each other on the back and go home. All of those things are good. That's why we're here. Don't quit coming because I just said all that. But that's not the complete definition of worship. Worship is a, a response in the heart of someone who believes that they've received It's a response of thanks and praise that then leads you to sit in that pew and stand up and pray with joy and want to be here and be a part of things and put up with less than perfect situations and be a blessing. It's thanks and praise that wells up inside of you because you believe you're a recipient of God's love and grace. And when we give to people, according to Paul, according to the Holy Spirit, it makes people worship God. That's pretty cool. That's something that food doesn't do by itself, but God does it in the heart, right? Or clothes or removing somebody's sheetrock or a tree in their backyard. Um, There is one more thing he said it does, though, and it's verse 14. In their prayers for you, their hearts, what does it say? Will go out to you. And then the because clause. Because the surpassing grace of God given you. Their hearts go out to you. See what happens is that people who otherwise would not be united come together when someone gives generously and their hearts go out to each other and they become one. Did you see any reports about how racial lines were crossed? You know, the last few months in our country, we've really had a partly ignited by the media, a heightened sense of racism, right? As we bring attention to the people who really aren't getting it and we make news out of them, right? 
So during the floods down there, as they're rescuing people, did you see that one black man in his boat went to a house that had the rebel flag proudly displayed, and he went in there and he rescued that family? And the reporters asked him, well, why did you go there? He's got a rebel flag. Did it make you think twice? He said, no, they're people like me. They need to be saved, right? And then there was a guy with a rebel flag on his boat going down through the flooded street with a black family in his boat. and They're all smiling and they're happy. Why? Because they're people. The generosity that comes out of a Harvey as God teaches people to be generous crosses race, gender, culture, age, and everything else that we build up between us. We're all just people, whether we're an eight-day-old child or an 85-year-old man. We're all just people. And when we learn to be generous, like God is generous, who died for everyone and does not... He sees color. He sees it a part of his creativity. (laughs) But we need to see it that way too. We are part of melting hard hearts. So now, the question is, what are we waiting for? You can't be everywhere at one time. Paul was collecting an offering in Corinth. You know why? They couldn't get out of Corinth, leave their jobs and families, and go down there for an 800-mile trip, right? But they could give money, right? You can't do everything, but can you give a day? We'll show you how to sign up on our volunteer form. You can't give everything, but can you give a dollar? Can, you can't pray all day, but can you give a prayer? You can't encourage everyone. You've got to do some things right now that you've got to take care of, but can you encourage Somewhat. Together, we can do incredible things. And we have a church body that's got a Christian aid and relief that has money and has, has tools. They sent two trailers down here this week. Our pastor, Darren, was the organizer for our, our district so far and doing a great job. That's why I ran up to Pflugerville today and back to cover for him because he's coming back today from Edna, Victoria. We're going to Houston this week, and they were hit a lot harder. And we've got churches down there where they've spent the last four days gutting their own members' homes. My son's been involved in that. They've done five homes already. And we've got several other churches that they're reporting to me that what they're doing, we're going to go try to assess and see what we can do to help. Can you do anything? A little bit? We were right next to the disaster, but they're in it. And God just told us what blessings we're going to do for people's hearts. So even a prayer of thanks and Lord, yes, I will pray for them will be what's in the corner of your heart. Remember, not the corner of the dollar. This is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's kneeling the 95 theses on the door of his church and the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which is getting the church back to the Bible. And by getting the church back to the Bible, is getting us back to pure grace. And if you ask any of us, what, it, what, what did God use that man, the father of Protestant Christianity, to give to the church? We would say grace, not works. You don't work your way to heaven. You're forgiven by grace, and it's free, right? But did you know that Luther in his day was a champion of good works for your neighbor. He was a leader in it. In fact, did you know that Katie, his wife, hid money from him? She did. You know why? He'd give it all away. He was always bringing people home to live there, and students that couldn't make it and wanted to be pastors, they lived there. And he was always feeding people and giving stuff away. And she said, Luther, we have six kids. You cannot give it all away. 
We hide money because maybe we want to spend it on something our spouse wouldn't be real happy about or we want to give them a gift that we don't want them to know about or but she had money to keep him from giving it all away. Luther said this. God doesn't need your good works. But your neighbor does. And embedded in those first, that first paragraph was this thought. You don't have to go back to it, but was this thought. God is generous to you so through the abundance He gives you you'll be generous with others. It wasn't so you could count your net worth. At the very end of the last paragraph, it says, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Do you know what Paul's talking about? The gift of the knowledge of the grace of God that frees you up to be a a game changer for this planet. I know some of you watch the news and you shake your head. You've told me. And you get sad because you see all the selfishness and evil going on around there. This is your chance. This is your chance to change people by being part of the indescribable gift of God's grace. Don't miss it. Amen.